This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hello, this is Russell Moore. Welcome to my new podcast. And this is the first episode of our study that we're taking through the book of Genesis, which I'm calling First Word, the book of Genesis and the kingdom of Christ. If you're new to the Bible, that's great. Uh, If you want to follow along with the scripture, we're going to start with a very short uh, portion of uh, the scripture this time, but we'll have longer portions later on. But for today, just find uh, Genesis chapter 1 in your search engine, or if you have a physical copy, even better. Turn to literally the first page of text, and you'll have Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 1. And let's uh, let's go ahead and read uh, that, that short section together which says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. These, these are words that uh, even people who are not familiar with the Bible at all are familiar with just because of the way that they've made their way into our uh, culture together, but they have to do with, obviously, beginnings and with origins. And I I think there's a sense in which in all of uh, the stories that we listen to, we tend to think about what's the the origin point, what's the, the reason for what's happening, and we tend to do that with our own lives as well. I remember one time I was uh, I ran into somebody uh, in Washington who was also from the same uh, rough area that I'm from, from the same county or two over, but in coastal Mississippi. And we were talking, and I heard somebody that I work with saying on the phone to someone else, "He's going to be late. He's found another Gulf Coast Mississippian, and so they're going through who's related to who and and what have you." There's something about that's maybe heightened. <laughs> when it comes to Mississippi, but it's true for really everybody. There's a sense of, sometimes a sense of ambiguity when it comes to our origins, because there can be a kind of nostalgia and an idealizing of uh, those origin points, or there can be uh, sometimes, for some people, a sense of trauma And sometimes the two go together. Uh, Sometimes even the sense of nostalgia, of looking backward at at where one started, there can be a sense of loss in the the sense that everything goes away. I I, uh, sometimes will go back to places that I remembered uh, going to when I was a kid and, and they're gone because of a hurricane or because the, the store that used to sell the snowballs uh, in the summer shut down or, or something else. And there's a sense of, of longing and a sense of loss along with a sense of joy at remembering things. Well, the book of Genesis has both of those things, origin and trauma, joy and loss and starts off the biblical story that way. And if you'll notice as we're moving through Genesis, one of the things that you'll find is that there are unresolved questions that Genesis leaves to a certain degree unresolved. 
And so Genesis is very different from, there, there are a lot of people who want to compare Genesis to the pagan creation myths, and there certainly is an answer from Genesis to those pagan creation myths, and uh, uh, contrasting uh, with a lot of those uh, false stories. But Genesis is very different in lots of ways, but one of those ways is there is a sense of genuine mystery and tension and unresolved questions that are here uh, in the text, and that's intentional, you'll see later on in the Bible. So you have, for instance, at the very beginning, we're going to talk about uh, later on how God says, all things are put under your feet to humanity, to the man and the woman. And as the book of Hebrews will say later on in the New Testament, but we don't see all things uh, under our feet. We're we're people who are at the whim of uh, nature in all sorts of ways. And maybe you and I are especially attuned to that uh, right now. As I'm recording this, uh, I'm hidden in a lair uh, here in my house as uh, most of the world is under some form of quarantine or social distancing because of a virus that we don't have a ready cure to simply uh, do away with. And so we're reminded of the fact that nature uh, nature is powerful over us. We don't have all things yet under our feet. That's an unresolved question in Genesis. Or uh, the promise that's being made to Abraham, I will give you this land and you will have, uh, you will have descendants that are as many as the stars and many as the, the, the grains of uh, sand. And yet the book of Genesis ends, you'll notice, uh, with Joseph dying and making arrangements for his bones in Egypt, outside of the land of promise. So there are, there are all sorts of these tension points and mysteries and unresolved questions that are resolved later on in the biblical story. So as we start this look into Genesis, a couple of things that I think are important for us to note. First of all is that I believe, along with Jesus, that this is a truthful account, and it's a truthful account that does not answer all of the questions that we pose to it, because it's, again, posing some questions that are only going to be answered in the light of Christ and then in the light of eternity. But it gives us the sorts of questions to ask. So sometimes when we come to Genesis, especially 1 through 11, one of the things that people will want to do is to spend a lot of time talking about, well, how do these passages fit with the insights that we know about science or astrophysics or earth history or anthropology or or what have you, uh, whether either to fit them together or to uh, contradict them? And that's not what we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about here. Uh, I think there are a lot of good questions there. They're answered uh, elsewhere. But I think the questions that we need to tackle here are going to be the questions that the text itself raises. And uh, again, a lot of that is not answered and intentionally not answered. So if you think about what God is doing and telling you that he created the cosmos and uh, something of why he created the cosmos that's going to be answered more specifically later on, there's a good deal of that that he is 
he is holding back from us in order to elicit a sense of limitedness of humanity, a sense of awe and of reverence. So if you think of, uh, for instance, the ending of the book of Job, after everything that Job has been through, and only a little bit, he doesn't, Job doesn't even see and know what we can see as the readers of the text about what's taking place in the heavenly council, uh, for instance, in that uh, conversation between God and Satan. But at the end of it, when Job is crying out to God, God points him to his creation, to nature, but he does so in a way that points both to what can be seen and also to what is a mystery. Where were you when I laid the foundations? Can you count the stars? Can you answer all of these questions? And the, the ultimate answer is no, I put my, my hand over my mouth. Uh, in the same way, the scripture gives us some revelation and enough revelation that we need to know the end part of the story, but at the same time says, no one knows the day or the hour in which the Son of Man comes. And if anyone tells you that he or she does, that, that person's lying. Uh, if someone says to you, here is the Christ or there is the Christ, no, you'll know when the Christ comes. So there's a good deal of uh, mystery that is embedded within the revelation. What we know is that God has given to us a truthful account that is truthful in every category of truth. And we also know that it's not just that we don't have all of the questions we might ask in some biblical accounts, although we can, uh, some of those things that, that we don't know about, we can speculate and argue and wrestle with them and, and so forth. But that's true not only with the text of the Bible, that's true with everything. God has created a universe in which there are so many mysterious questions, even when it comes to uh, science itself. What is time? How does time relate to space? What is dark matter that uh, scientists are saying make up most of? Uh, the, the created order around us, or the as they might put it, the natural order around us. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know all the answers to those things. And even more than that, there are some things that we don't even know the questions to ask yet. And I think a lot of that is true in what's happening here in Genesis. There are things revealed in Genesis such as, uh, for instance, that God created humanity as male and female. And from the very beginning, God created the male and the female to be one flesh. So talking about the, the foundations of marriage. But it's only in Ephesians 5 that we find out why God is doing that as a, a picture of Christ and the church. What the scripture is doing, though, is giving to us this revelation from the very beginning of the text of God. And specifically, notice those words, in the beginning God created. Now, I think that is crucially important for everything else that we're going to encounter in the Bible. And one of the reasons it's so important is because what the Bible is affirming here is that God is not just a tribal God. So if we started only with the calling of Abraham later on 
in the book of Genesis, then there, there might be a temptation to say what, uh, what various people have tried to say over the years. Well, God is God for Israel, and there are other gods for other peoples uh, around the world. Uh, that, that temptation was always there. Think of what uh, in First Kings, for instance, you think that God is a God of the hills and not of the valleys, uh, that, that God is God within Israel, but not outside the borders of Israel. But that's not true. This is the beginning in Genesis, not just of Israel's story, although it is the beginning of Israel's story, but it's the beginning of the entire story of humanity and the entire story of the cosmos. So this is not just a tribal gospel that we're going to be receiving. And that's why Paul, for instance, can uh, preach in Athens in Acts chapter 17 and talk about the createdness of humanity and talk about uh, what it is that we owe to a creator God. It's it's because of this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And notice, there's not a buildup here to uh, describe God as a character. God is simply announced here. In the beginning, God is the one who is created. That's a similar posture that the Bible takes uh, elsewhere. Think of, uh, for instance, Moses when he is uh, encountering God in that bush that's on fire but not being consumed. And he says, well, when you send me to Pharaoh, uh, who shall I say sent me? And God's response is simply to say, I am that which I am. So God explains everything else, not the other way around. He is uh, from the very beginning, put in an entirely different category, and in fact, he transcends all of the categories. It's what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he says that God dwells in unapproachable light, the God that no one has seen or can see. He's, he's the, the, the beginning of all of this. He sets it in motion, but he is not defined by it. He instead defines everything. And so the other thing, though, that I think we need to see here, even in these opening verses of Genesis, is that we're seeing a plot line that is ultimately going to be resolved. And I don't just mean the plot line of the text. I mean the the plot line of the universe itself. So you can start to see, even in these very early passages, some themes and some imagery that are going to come to a conclusion in Jesus. So if you think of, for instance, what Jesus is doing when he's uh, after the resurrection and he's on the road to Emmaus and he's talking to some of his followers and he, he shows them, he opens up the scripture to them as to how all of the scripture points to him what the Apostle Paul will talk about later when he says all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. The whole cosmic story, though, it's not, it's not just each verse of Scripture finds its centering point in Jesus. It's that everything does. That's, that's what Paul's revealing in Colossians chapter 1, for instance, when he says it's through him and for him 
everything is made. John 1 says a similar thing. Hebrews 1 says a similar thing. All things are made through him, and he is the heir of all things. And it's that mystery of Christ, Ephesians chapter 1, that everything is summed up in him, and he is the one who uh, receives everything. So everything is created for him. They hold together in him. That is a theme that is beginning right here in Genesis and works its way through all of the revelation of God. And there are several points of that that I want us to start out by looking at. And the first of those is this idea of word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the question is, how is God doing that? And What Genesis tells us is that God is doing that through his word. God is speaking the universe into existence, and he's speaking every aspect of the universe into existence through his word. Now, that's going to be something that's going to be really important throughout the book of Genesis, language. So it's not just that God is speaking, it's that Human beings, as created in the image of God, are also speaking. And this speech that we see uh, throughout the, the pages of Genesis can be used either creatively, sort of imaging back to the creation of God. So, Adam names the animals, for instance, and, and whatsoever he names them, that was their names. That's a creative use of, of speech or can be used destructively. So when the serpent in Genesis 3, for instance, uses a word, uses speech in order to destroy by speaking something that's not true, you shall not surely die, speaking some things that are partly true, but, uh, but using them in a way that is meant to destroy. You think of the way that language uh, is used in the Tower of Babel later on. They're, they're having this project frustrated by not being able to understand a common language or the way that uh, language and word is used in the promise that God is making to Abraham, that that word is, is crucial here. Well, that's something that is intentional. So when you go through Genesis 1 and God says, let there be, and there was, with, with all of these things that are mentioned, let there be light and there was light. Let there be land and there was land. Let there be birds in the skies and there were birds in the skies. There's, there's that the power of the word in creation is something that we are going to see explained more in John chapter one that uses this language. In the beginning was the word. But what John is revealing is that the word of God, God's self-disclosure of himself, is not like it is with us. You know, I'm, I'm speaking to you right now, and I have concepts in my mind, and I'm, I have a, a mouth that's moving and vocal cords that are vibrating, and you have, uh, you have uh, elements in your ear that are receiving these vibrations, and you're intelligibly working through them in your mind. With God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's there's an analogy there with the way that we communicate with one another, but there's not 
there's not a one-to-one correspondence with that. What it shows us, though, is why word is so important. So if you think of, for instance, the way this shows up in the life of Jesus, Mark chapter 1 is an example. You have a Jesus who is calling his disciples, and uh, what, what the text shows us is that when Jesus comes up to Peter and James and John and the others, uh, there, is no, there is no negotiating a package here with them. He simply says, come follow me, and they follow him. Uh, he, he goes into that synagogue in Capernaum in Mark 1, and he is teaching, Mark says, as one with authority and not as one of the scribes. Later on, you will have Jesus uh, speaking to the unclean spirits, and immediately they leave. Or when uh, a boat is being threatened by the winds and the waves, and Jesus speaks and says, peace be still. And and the text says that the disciples say to themselves, who is this that he speaks and the winds and the waves obey him? Or in one of my favorite uh, passages in Luke 8, when he goes to the little child that has died, and the text says that the people who were gathered around laughed at him knowing that she was dead because they're saying, this is too late. You, you, why are you going and acting like you're going to do some healing on her when she's, she's dead? Jesus speaks, child arise, and she gets up. So what we see in terms of the way that we use words and the way that we are addressed by words, we're mimicking something that's part of the creation fabric of the universe, which is that the word of God is what uh, brings everything into existence. Through him was everything made, and that holds everything together, holds it all together, even right now. That's why our words are important in ways that we, we don't tend to think that they are, especially maybe right now in our kind of cultural moment where uh, it, it's easy for people to use words really instrumentally. But Jesus doesn't allow us to do that because Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Well, why? Because what the Bible is saying is that the words have to correspond. There has to be a congruence between the words and and who we actually are, that the intentions of the heart and the words that are spoken have to be congruent. They, they go together. So even in one of those uh, really familiar passages in Romans, if you confess with the mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, those two things go together with one another. And when they're out of sync, when we're, we're using words in terms of lying or we're using words in terms of manipulation, then we're not actually imaging the truth of who our creator is. You can't separate those two things from one another, nor can you separate in terms of the, the word of God, that personal word of God that takes on flesh as our Lord Jesus from the Bible as the word of God. That little children's song that many of us who grew up in the church learned, Jesus loves me, this I know, 
for the Bible tells me so. Those, those two things go together. You receive the authority of the Bible, and the Bible points you to Jesus at, at every point. You, you look to the authority of Jesus, and Jesus affirms the authority of the Bible. So God's not speaking uh, different messages. God is speaking a coherent and congruent word that holds together. And that has everything to do then with how we how we operate and how we we use words. So you, you think about the way the Apostle Paul uh, talks about the fact that we are not peddlers of God's word. We don't use words as as manipulative devices, but instead, with the open proclamation of the truth, we speak to one another's. Uh, we speak to consciences. Well, why? It, it's it's because of foundationally what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter one about the way that God is creating and holding together through his word. And what we see later on when we see the development of covenant, where, for instance, with, um, with Noah and with Abraham, God's word, his saying this will happen, is as good as it happening. The voice of God causes things to happen. It's the devil who's a liar from the beginning. Whose, whose word is out of sync. And so we constantly have a, a temptation, as James tells us, uh, for the tongue to be used in different ways, to be used in order to tear down or to self-protect. So think about where most lying comes from, where most gossip comes from. You're trying to do something with your words that is out of step with who God created you to be in Jesus Christ. So word is a big, big concept here. Another is light. And God said, let there be light. Now, when we talk about these days of creation, we're going to see that separation of light from darkness and land from sea and and so forth. But I wanted to include light here because, again, as Christians— we have to see how Genesis 1 is explained to us in, for instance, John 1. And this idea of word and light together shows up there. Let there be light. First thing that God is speaking in that way. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because John says that the word... He uses that language of word, and he also talks about the light that is shining in the darkness. So what God is doing in Jesus Christ is a word that creates and orders and redirects, and also a light that shines and illuminates. And as John will tell us in John 3, and we'll see uh, an, an image of in Genesis 3, is painful for people who are living in darkness. So what you have in the very beginning here of Genesis is an unveiling of this idea of glory. You know, we, we hear the word glory, it shows up a lot in Scripture, and sometimes it's, it's difficult to understand what that means. And I think one of the reasons for that is because it's used sometimes in slightly different uh, ways. So C.S. Lewis really helpfully in the weight of glory, talked about glory as light, a sort of luminosity, as he put it, something that's that's shining, and as applause. 
He's using those two metaphors for glory, and both of those things are significant and important in Scripture. Now, one of the things that's really significant here is that God is revealing light before he's talking about the sun. Well, why? Well, there are all sorts of reasons, and one of those reasons being Genesis is contrasting with other ways that, uh, that, that the ways that fallen people are trying to explain creation and their origins. And there's, there's always this temptation to see, as Romans 1 puts it, the creation itself as being a god or as being multiple gods. That's one of the reasons why that there are so many human cultures that have worshipped the sun. Because if you, you think about the dependence that we all have upon the sun and upon light and upon heat, um, it, it would be very natural for someone to say, well, this must be a deity, natural in the fallen sense, not in the created sense. But the sun points backward to light. So the, the sun itself is dependent upon God's creation and is uh, is dependent upon, it's, it's reflective almost of God's glory. And it's a glory that is beyond what we can see in this creation, such that Moses uh, later on can't endure it. So you, you think of God hiding Moses in the cleft of the rock. Think about when Moses uh, encounters God and he comes back with this secondhand glory off of his face that the people can't endure. They're, they're having to put a veil over him uh, because they can't stand the the light of that, this, uh, this sense of glory. And that sense of light is related to that other image that Lewis gives of applause. So think of, for instance, in John chapter 12, uses glory both in terms of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. He, Isaiah spoke of Jesus because he saw his glory— Think of the glory of God filled the temple in Isaiah 6. And then it says that the people, even though they could see what it is that Jesus was saying, they turned away from him. And why? They didn't want to be put out of the synagogues, out of their tribes, because they loved the glory that came from man more than the glory that came from God. So light and applause Together, I mean, we use the same sort of imagery all the time. You think about, you might say, somebody who wants a lot of attention, he always wants to be in the spotlight. Okay, well, that, that's the same sort of image of light and applause together in a twisted way. But everything that's twisted is reflecting off of something that is uh, created to be good in some way or the other. And so Genesis chapter 1 is talking about this light and this word together in the exact same way that John will talk about the word became flesh and we what we beheld his glory glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth so we're we're seeing where this is headed there and another thing that we can see already here in genesis uh, in these first uh, three or four verses of Genesis, is the idea of presence. So when God is creating everything, in Genesis 1-2, it says that the earth was without form and void. 
So this is wilderness language here, wasteland language here. Uh, and it says that the Spirit is hovering, uh, language here, over the waters. So you have a, a watery chaos here, and the Spirit is the Spirit of God is brooding over all of that. Now, think about this for a minute. You have water showing up really early here. I'm somebody who grew up on a beach, grew up on the Gulf of Mexico, love uh, the ocean. I feel most myself when I'm around, when I can smell salt in the air and see lighthouse and, and see the, the, the waters. But there's a sense in which, for most people, the idea of water, the idea of ocean can bring either a sense of sort of awe and refreshing or a sense of uh, fear and of panic. So David Foster Wallace, uh, the author, wrote this uh, famous essay, A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again. He's talking about a cruise. And he's talking about being on this cruise ship with all of these other people and they're you know, eating and dancing and drinking and eating and all the things that go on on a, on a cruise ship while they're surrounded by the ocean and that he has this sense of dread of the possibility of death. And uh, he, he talks about how when he teaches his students Moby Dick, uh, he says, I want them to feel the same marrow-level dread of the oceanic dread of the oceanic, that I've always felt the intuition of the sea as the primordial nada, nothing, bottomless depths inhabited by cackling, tooth-studded things rising towards you at the rate that a feather falls, end quote. So the sense of the ocean as chaos, as scary, as can destroy you, as grave. But then there are other uh, ways of thinking about uh, the ocean. Father Zosima in uh, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, for instance, says everything's like an ocean. And what he means by that is the connectedness and the flowing together of uh, all sorts of actions upon one another. And there's a sense of ocean as life-giving, water as life-giving. Well, in reality, both are true. That's why people go to the water, whether they go to the beach or they go to the the lake or they they go to the pond uh, near them. They go to water for this sense of calming and of uh, relaxation. And there's a sense of fear at the possibility of drowning uh, some people are, are really terrified of, of sharks or alligators or whatever they can't see underneath the water. Well, both of those impulses are completely biblical because uh, the Bible speaks of water on, on the one hand as source of life. Jesus will speak of himself as a fountain of living water. Ezekiel will talk about that water, that living water that's coming from the temple, and everywhere that the water goes, it creates life. That's present there. And the scripture will speak of the sea in terms of Leviathan, the, the, the monster of chaos. Or think of in the book of Revelation, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Or in Revelation, I remember uh, as a kid, because we had a lot of preachers who preached through Revelation a lot, and whenever we would get to the section on the new heavens and the new earth, and there was no more sea, 
I would always be really disappointed by that. Well, I, I live on the sea. This is this is who who would want to live in a world without a, without an ocean? But what Revelation is saying there is that there is no more of this chaotic uh, judgment that is present there. The the sort of imagery that we see with Jonah. Jonah is in a um, in a storm, nearly capsizing boat. He's thrown over into the water. Uh, as a almost a, a sacrifice, a pacifying of these pagan sailors. And he goes down into the water, into uh, a sea creature, and he, he speaks of it as death, as being housed in death. And Jesus says there's a reason for that, because the sign of Jonah is just as he was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. So that, that sense of terror and that sense of dependence on water are both true. And so you have this watery reality here with the Spirit brooding over it, formlessness and void, watery. And you see that being echoed, I think, later on at the baptism of Jesus where you have all of those factors coming together. So Jesus is going to the water, and he's going specifically to the Jordan River. So this represents life. The Israelites came through the Jordan in order to come into the promised land, and it also represents judgment. That's why John is so confused in the text when he's, he's baptizing people as repentance. He's saying to them, you're snakes. And so he's, he's baptizing them into judgment, into the waters. They're repenting of their sin and confessing that they're deserving of the judgment of God. Jesus comes up and says, I want to be baptized by you. And John is confused because uh, Jesus is not a sinner. But why is Jesus doing this? It's because he's identifying himself with those of us who are sinners. He's identifying himself with us in judgment, death, and burial, just as he later will in what he calls his baptism, uh, the baptism that he has to undergo at the cross. So baptism represents all of that at once, signifies all of that at once. We, we had uh, in a church that I served really early in my ministry, we had a lady there, I think of her all the time, that she was at everything. And I just assumed that she was a pillar of the church that had been there all along. And I hadn't been there very long at all, and we were talking about people to serve on various committees, and I said, well, I think we need to put Miss Mary, I'm giving her a different name here, on that committee. And somebody said, well, we can't, uh, we can't put Miss Mary on the committee because she hasn't been baptized. And I said, well, why hasn't she been baptized? Uh, well, let's, let's get her baptized. I mean, she was obviously a believer in Christ, and she obviously was really had a heart to serve the Lord. And they said, well, what you need to know about Miss Mary is she goes every Friday and gets her hair done in this very elaborate bouffant hairdo. And she just thinks that being baptized in front of people would be humiliating. You know, she'd come out with all her hair messed up or, or, and everything. And I remember thinking at the time, that is so petty and silly. But then later on, as I was thinking about it more, I thought, well, you know, there is an aspect of that that's exactly right. Baptism is humiliating. It's meant to be humiliating. 
because it's meant to identify ourselves in terms of the just judgment of death, but that we have already been through this because we're crucified with Christ. It's a humiliating thing. So Jesus, when he is there in his baptism, identifying himself with us, the text says that when he comes up out of the water, the spirit comes down on him as a dove. This this imagery here of a bird brooding, hovering over the waters there with Jesus, and there is a voice. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That all of that is happening together, echoing back, I think, to these opening verses of Genesis. And what you see here in this presence is that God in creating the universe that we have is also committing himself to be with us. And again, there's a mystery here. We don't see how it's resolved yet, nor do we see how when God says so often in Scripture, they will be my people and I will be their God. I will walk among them. He uses that sort of language, and we don't see how that all comes together until we see the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so what what we see the hints of, even here in these opening verses of Genesis, is that in this created universe as creatures, materiality alone leads to idolatry. A lot of people who think that, think we're we're just matter, and we just live in a, in a world that's made up of matter. And so everything's just about sensations and nerve endings and uh, using things and using people. That leads to idolatry. I mean, the, the, very, the very concept of idolatry that we first think of, of creating statues to worship, materiality alone leads to that. But spirituality alone also leads to idolatry as the New Testament teaches as well. If we, if we don't see the way that the material has been created by God and is meant to be sanctified by God, then what's going to happen is we're going to be uh, led into this sort of hyper-spirituality that denies the material, as we see in some of those early heresies that start showing up even in the New Testament, that leads to idolatry. Instead, what God is showing us from the very beginning is that everything that can be seen and everything that can be touched around us is created by God, is not God, is dependent upon him, comes together at his word, is held together by his word, so it cannot be worshiped, and that God has joined himself in a very real sense. He is present with his creation in a way that in these opening verses of Genesis, we can't even imagine just what that will look like later on. So in the beginning, there's a mystery at the center of all that, and the mystery is that there's something personal here, that the word that calls everything together is personal, that the light that shines in the darkness is personal. God certainly is personal. The Spirit of God is not just what we would think of with an abstraction. Uh, the, the Spirit of this place is warm, or 
uh, I'm trying to be faithful to the spirit of the American Constitution, or however you would you would use that language. The spirit here is personal, and that person has a name and a face, and ultimately an address. And that's meant to disturb you to say, wait a minute, that this is telling me where everything, how everything came together, what what the source of everything is, but it's meant to rattle you a little bit in order to say, well, where is this all going? Well, where it's going is where you cannot yet go or cannot yet see or cannot yet even imagine, but it's headed to Bethlehem. That's the opening of Genesis 1, and we will continue onward from there. This is Russell Moore. Thanks for listening to the podcast.